This is the LexisNexis Environmental Law and Climate Change Center podcast. Interviews and discussions with leading attorneys and industry professionals. On this edition, highlights from the symposium Law and the Environment, Designing a Transatlantic Agenda. On January 7, 2009, the Atlantic Council of the United States, in cooperation with LexisNexis, held a symposium in New York City on Law and the Environment, Designing a Transatlantic Agenda. The goal of the symposium and dinner, hosted by LexisNexis CEO Andy Prosis, was to explore U.S. and European approaches to environmental regulation and international environmental law as a precursor to discussing how the United States and European Union might better cooperate in protecting the environment. The symposium's first session was entitled U.S. and European Approaches to Environmental Regulation in the Domestic Arena and featured Michael Girard of Columbia Law School and Ursula Schliesner of McKenna Long and Aldridge in Brussels. Michael Girard is Professor of Professional Practice and Director of the Center for Climate Change Law at Columbia Law School. Until late 2008, he headed the New York office of Arnold and Porter LLP and its environmental practice and he is currently senior counsel to the firm. He has practiced environmental law in New York since 1979. Ursula Schliesner is the managing partner for the McKenna Long and Aldridge's Brussels office. Her practice focuses on European community regulatory law with an emphasis on environmental, food, biotech, workers' health and safety, and product safety regulatory matters. The session was moderated by Richard Stewart of New York University School of Law who directs the school's Center on Environmental and Land Use Law. Uh, we have two panels, one on U.S. and European approaches to domestic environmental regulation and the second on their approaches to international environmental law. And for the reasons that were just mentioned, uh, this is a somewhat artificial uh, distinction because domestic regulation of products impacts international trade, uh, of processes uh, impacts the way uh, uh, international business has to do business in, 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 in different countries and, of course, can have spillover effects uh, in the form of pollution, greenhouse gases, and, and so forth. And on the other hand, efforts uh, internationally to have cooperation in, in uh, dealing with these interdependencies gonna ha has a, a feedback effect at the domestic level, as we all, as we all know. And uh, you scratch the surface of any environmental problem, domestic or internationally, and you're soon into fights over competitiveness between different industries, industries in different countries, and, and that uh, is going to be a, a reality that has to be addressed. And I, I think the, from the, the, we get into this when we discuss the international part of it, we have a very strong, relatively strong uh, international economic uh, laws and institutions and much weak, weaker environmental ones. And so there's a real imbalance there, and how can that be Addressed and uh, something dear to Boyden in my heart. Uh, how how can the market be maybe restructured, reconstituted to serve environmental ends? Uh, I think that's the way we're going to have to go for climate change, forests, and another other uh, initiatives. But um, uh, that can come out of the discussion. Uh, we have two panels, uh, each with a, uh, just about an hour uh, on our schedule, and so the ground rules will be uh, thus. For the first panel, we have two speakers. Uh, so I'm going to ask uh, each of them to limit their remarks to 10 minutes or, or maybe no more than 12. Uh, 
And uh, then we're not, we're going to have a, open it up to a general discussion. We don't want sort of just Q&A back to the speakers. So I'm going to encourage people to make comments. You can address a question uh, uh, to one of the speakers or both if you want. But I, 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 I want to have this a more uh, roundtable uh, type of discussion. And so if you uh, want to intervene, please put up your uh, name card. Uh, the, um, uh, the lighting and my uh, aging eyesight may not enable me to recognize you by name, uh, but I will be able to uh, get you into the mix. So in accordance with the order listed on the program, we're going to start with Mike Girard, who will uh, discuss uh, the U.S. Uh, domestic approach to environmental regulation, and then Ursula Schlesner uh, will discuss the uh, European approach. Mike? Thanks very much, Dave. The United States used to see itself as the world's innovator in environmental regulation. The first major uh, U.S. environmental statute of the modern era, the National Environmental Policy Act of 1970, uh, launched a worldwide movement toward environmental assessment and was really the harbinger of a lot of work around the world. There followed in short order the Clean Air Act of 1970, the Clean Water Act of 1972, and most of the other uh, great environmental laws. So the 1970s were really the golden age of environmental lawmaking in the United States. There were a few passed in the 1980s. The last uh, major environmental statutes passed in the United States were in 1990, the Oil Pollution Act and the Clean Air Act amendments under the first President Bush. The entirety of the Clinton administration and the administration of the second President Bush have uh, come and are about to go on uh, with no uh, new environmental uh, legislation at the federal level of any great moment. The baton for environmental innovation has really passed to a large extent to Europe. Uh, we'll hear in, in the next panel, I think, more about the European emissions uh, trading system. Uh, but uh, we also have uh, WE, the uh, Waste Electronic and Electrical Equipment Directive, uh, which concerns the disposal of waste uh, electrical equipment and the related uh, ROWS, the uh, restriction of hazardous substances, which concerns the uh, content of certain chemicals in electronic equipment. Um, those um, uh, European initiatives have spread to the West. At least a dozen of the U.S. states have adopted similar programs. And uh, just a few months ago, here in New York City, Mayor Bloomberg uh, signed a law that uh, is uh, somewhat similar. Then we have REACH, Registration, Evaluation, Authorization, and Restriction of Chemicals, which went into effect two years ago uh, in uh, Europe and has uh, already had uh, tremendous effects around the world. In the first place, any manufacturer anywhere who uh, chemicals who wants to sell into the European market has to uh, be concerned with REACH. Um, just uh, uh, three months ago, uh, Governor Schwarzenegger signed a California law which is very consciously based on reach. New York State is now considering uh, something along those lines. And at the federal level, there's a great deal of discussion. In the last year, Congress uh, enacted a, a narrow law concerning phthalates in, uh, in toys. Uh, but there's a lot of active discussion on taking the lead of REACH, uh, there's something called the proposed, uh, called the Kid Safe Chemical Act, which is being championed by uh, Representative Henry Waxman, who is taking over the House Commerce Committee, and Representative uh, 
Hilda Solis, who uh, Hilda Solis, who's about to become a Secretary of Labor, and so there's a lot of um, uh, a lot of momentum uh, behind that and taking uh, uh, the uh, the lead of Europe. It's interesting that um, in the United States, uh, much of the regulatory focus on chemicals has been in old chemicals, in, in buried chemicals under CERCLA, uh, whereas in Europe it's more on the preventative side and the active uh, uh, production of chemicals. And, and I would argue that Europe has it much more right than the U.S. in terms of actual uh, exposure and risks of populations. Um, since I'm, I only have Ten minutes. Let me just uh, <laughs> highlight uh, two salient differences that I think exist between the, the way in which the Americans regulate uh, uh, the environment and the way the, uh, the Europeans do. And uh, my colleagues from the other side of the ocean will tell me if I have the European part wrong. Um, the first is the role of judicial review. Uh, litigation plays an absolutely central role in the uh, American system of environmental governance. Uh, there are literally several thousand uh, lawsuits uh, brought every year in the United States uh, federal courts and uh, many more in the United States state courts on environmental issues. Um, I keep track of all the climate change litigation and at latest count there are about 200 lawsuits or administrative uh, proceedings in the United States uh, based mainly on uh, uh, climate change and the presence of this litigation is a major reason why rulemaking in the U.S. Uh, takes so long. Uh, most uh, uh, major environmental rulemaking in the United States ends up uh, being litigated uh, in the D.C. Circuit or elsewhere, and uh, and even getting there, uh, it, the anticipation of litigation means that just an enormous amount of uh, paperwork and so forth have to go into uh, the process, and then. Uh, uh, with alarming uh, regularity, the rulemakings are then struck down because of some procedural uh, defect. So far as I know, none of this is common in Europe, that there's a, a great deal less uh, environmental litigation uh, in at least most of the European countries. It's just not nearly as central a feature of, uh, of the environmental scene in Europe as it is in the United States. Um, the, the other uh, salient difference that I wanted to mentioned briefly is the role of constitutions. It's my understanding that in um, Europe, at the European Union level and in some of the countries, uh, there has been deemed to be uh, something of a constitutional right to a clean environment and the precautionary principle has become a very important part of the uh, regulatory structure. We don't really have that in the United States. There isn't a federal uh, right to a clean environment and to the extent that the, to the very considerable extent that the U.S. Constitution is relevant to environmental uh, governance in the U.S., I would say it's mostly on the negative side as an inhibition on environmental regulation. Most prominent example of that is the takings clause, uh, uh, private property rights being enshrined in the U.S. Constitution and frequently used as a means to fight back uh, environmental regulation, but beyond that, uh, the Commerce Clause, uh, both as a limitation on state power to regulate uh, things that may affect what's happening elsewhere, and uh, limitations on the Commerce Clause, uh, uh, on the power under the Commerce Clause, seen as a limitation on the uh, federal government's ability to regulate certain things like, uh, uh, like uh, remote wetlands. The Tenth Amendment, uh, uh, which concerns the rights of the states vis-a-vis -vis the federal government, has 
become an inhibition on some kinds of environmental regulation. Preemption uh, is, a, is a major issue. Uh, we may see litigation on the uh, compact laws for some of the uh, regional efforts to combat uh, uh, climate change. And so there is a, uh, uh, the constitutional structure in the two regions is, is very much different than I think that helps color the nature of environmental regulation in, in both places. The, in the U.S., the precautionary principle, I would say, is adopted sporadically. Uh, it seems to be adopted uh, in, in uh, circular remediation decisions. Uh, strange place to have it, and, and in many other places it, it's not adopted. So we have just not uh, moved in that direction. Um, the, I think I'm at nine and a half minutes, so the final thing that I wanted to, uh, uh, to say is that I know that, the, um, that in Europe there are a lot of uh, growing pains as the uh, European Union, Union emerges and, and, and its uh, lawmaking uh, role is uh, understood and, and the federalist system is, uh, is adopted. All I can say is that uh, you, you're welcome to look to the United States as examples, but we've been trying to do it since 1789, so we don't quite have it right. Uh, so there's a lot more uh, work ahead in that direction. Before I start my remarks, uh, thank you very much for inviting me. Uh, one point immediately on the litigation. We certainly have less litigation in Europe than in the United States, but we also have less litigation in other areas than in environmental law, look at and product liability, etc. We are just more consensus-oriented people, and we don't have punitive damages, etc., etc. So I wouldn't consider the absence or less obvious nature of EU environmental regulation or, or national environmental uh, litigation as something specific to environmental law. I think it's generally in the tradition uh, in Europe to mitigate less. Um, so uh, to my remarks, I have like six points on EU environmental law and two points on uh, national environmental uh, regulation, which I would like to make in my 12 minutes. And um, I think the first uh, two points have already been uh, made by uh, Michael. Um, one is um, that um, we traditionally in Europe have had a, at European level, a mix of uh, process and product-related um, environmental regulation. So we've had since um, um, since the 70s, regulation on waste, etc. We have regulations on um, integrated permitting. Uh, we have clean air and clean water type uh, legislation. But uh, we've also had, and that has to do with the competences of the EU, much more prominent product-related regulations, starting in 1967 with the regulations on uh, dangerous substances, then uh, moving on, in particular in the 1990s when I uh, came to Brussels, uh, regulations on recycling and recovery of packaging waste, we have batteries recovery uh, legislation, we have the WE and the ROS electronic recovery regulation. Um, uh, we um, have um, regulations, or in that case, directives on end-of-life vehicles, on the recycling of cars, etc., etc. And why is that? And now the REACH uh, regulation, again, amending and revising the entire EU chemicals regulation. And why is that? Well, to a large extent, in the 1990s, it was triggered by individual EU member states who passed national laws on specific products. And the EU then said, well, 
there will be interruption of trade between the EU member states. We, there's no guarantee of the internal market anymore, and therefore we need a European rule rather than national rules so that there can be um, free trade uh, for products among the EU member states. So the European Commission, which is the, the, uh, the organ that is proposing the legislation, very much uh, jumped into into that void because it was a means for the EU to become meaningful in the environmental area and to regulate. So it's much easier uh, to regulate on products because there's a better competence than to regulate uh, on processes where the member states jealously got their competence. Now, what's the, and that has, has had a major role over the years and it continues to be the case. And I think we'll see more of that in, uh, in the future. Now, for example, we have an action plan on sustainable consumption where, again, we will regulate individual products as like energy efficiency, et cetera, et cetera. And so that trend, I think, will continue. Now, um, because we uh, love to regulate products rather than processes in Europe, the impact internationally is much more evident. And here comes uh, the uh, interconnection with your um, uh, presentation in the sense that, of course, if those products are being manufactured in the United States and they have chemical restrictions in there, uh, um, and we have chemical restrictions in Europe, that means that you can no longer c uh, continue to export your American products to Europe because uh, they don't comply with our rules. So the impact of product-related legislation internationally is much more immediate and much more evident than uh, process-related legislation. That's uh, one of the reasons why we uh, see uh, the phthalate uh, ban in, uh, in the United States. It's much more palatable that way. That's why we see the electronic uh, waste legislation in California and so forth and so forth. Now, um, the, the, the next point, I'm now at four, I wanted to make is um, we see in Europe more centralization of um, product regulation in the sense that in the past we had directives, which means that they needed implementation into national law. And now the European Commission um, tends much more towards regulations, and whereas in the past it wasn't accepted by the Council of Ministers, who ultimately has to adopt the legislation. Now that the Parliament is more powerful, um, there is an alliance between the Commission and the European Parliament uh, for more acceptability of regulations, which are directly applicable, don't need any national implementation anymore. And that um, leads to more harmonization, less different interpretations, but it also leads, and here comes my, my negative point, also leads to a, more, uh, to a centralization of procedures of product authorizations at European level when it comes to approval of food products, for example, or when it comes to chemical restrictions of specific uh, products. And um, my negative point here is that, uh, of course, this brings more power uh, to the European Commission and to the various agencies that are being, um, being created uh, to handle those product authorizations. Look at the new uh, European Chemical Agency that will in the future be in charge of authorization of specific uses of, uh, of chemicals that are deemed particularly hazardous. Um, but that is, so the European Commission and the agencies are getting more into 
decision-making into adjudication as opposed to rulemaking in the past. Um, but this is not matched, in my opinion, um, and Boyd and Gray would love me to hear that, it's not matched by um, an administrative procedure, an administrative rule at European level. And uh, it's also not matched by access uh, to justice, because uh, many of these um, decisions are still taken in the form of uh, rulemaking, uh, annexes to directives, etc., etc., and um, there is basically no interim relief, and the access to the EU courts is uh, limited uh, to specific situations, and the court procedures at EU level usually take three to four years, and by the time you get a court decision of, for example, having an act annulled or something, or having an authorization denial or something annulled, um, after three or four years, your product is no longer in uh, interesting for the company, and therefore you give up early on. So my, the negative point I have here, the centralization is great, it leads to more harmonization, but it's not uh, matched up by access to courts. And as a lawyer, of course, I'm interested in access to courts. Now, um, um, because we focus more on product regulation, the, uh, the trade impacts, I said it before, are more evident, and we have an increasing number of WTO cases, including between the United States and Europe. And uh, But uh, what the European Commission has done is they have cushioned the introduction of new legislation at EU level by, I would say, a very smart advocacy process um, internationally. Uh, High-level uh, offices of, uh, of DG Environment have been sent to the missions um, of, um, of the European Commission in the various third countries, for example, in the United States, to explain um, to those third countries why the specific measures that have been introduced in, in the EU do not have a negative trade impact, are not discriminatory, etc., etc., etc. So there has been an advocacy uh, effort ongoing out, outside of the EU handled by the European Commission on the acceptance of EU regulation. And I think that has also had an impact on what's currently happening um, in the United States on Tosca reform, et cetera, et cetera, and a potential introduction of legislation similar to, uh, to reach um, in other countries. Now, the two points I wanted to make on, um, on the member states, because if we have to talk about domestic legislation, we also have to talk about domestic legislation of the EU member states, which still have um, quite uh, some, some leverage. Um, uh, I see an increased use of uh, economic, how we call it, economic instruments um, at national level to regulate environmental issues. And that causes me great concern because as far as the introduction of economic instruments is concerned, so taxes and charges on specific products for environmental reasons, like for example a tax on uh, packaging bags, on sales bags, or for example, we have recently in France legislation on charges on textiles. So when you buy a textile, there is a certain charge on it, so, uh, so that when you throw the textile away, there is enough money left for sorting of textiles and recycling of textiles. And these kinds of economic instruments are um, attractive for member states for two reasons. First, as I said before, 
there is less scrutiny on economic instruments at EU level uh, than there would be on mere traditional regulatory instruments because the tax instruments are just subject to the principle of non-discrimination. So if you have the same charge on a national product than on, an, on, a, on, a, on a foreign product, there is no discrimination and you're fine. Um, and the second reason why the, so it's easier to introduce. Um, the second reason is, um, in particular, France has used this um, uh, to reduce unemployment. The, the tax on textiles or the charges on textiles have been introduced because the national charity that is in charge of uh, textile uh, recycling in, in France, they're sorting it, sending it to third world countries, etc. suddenly felt that textiles didn't have the same kind of quality anymore, etc. as before that they were collecting and therefore uh, they have less revenues and they were employing a low-skilled uh, labor force. And so they considered that they need an additional source of revenue and that additional source of revenue they convinced the government uh, should be a, a tax on textiles. And if that example is followed by other member states, that means that you can basically recreate new non-employment or low-skilled workers' uh, budgets um, for, uh, for environmental purposes. And I find that a very interesting and very alarming element from an industry point of view. And then um, uh, the last point I wanted to make on national regulation is that we've had national champions of environmental regulation in the EU, and I see that continue. There are certain member states that have funds set aside for doing risk assessments on chemical substances, for example, and then bringing those risk assessments to EU level, um, and then the EU has already a risk assessment in place in order to, um, to have reasons for uh, restricting certain chemical products. So if if you have certain member states that are very green, like the Scandinavian member states, and they are having an agenda in view of, um, of restricting certain chemicals, then because they have the funds available, they can have this agenda uh, brought through. So these were my two remarks on the, uh, on the, on the member states. In general, I, I do not share the, um, the concern that there is a backdrop in environmental regulation, including in the EU. I've had my busiest year ever as a lawyer uh, last year, and I, th I think that the EU is continuing to be on the, at the forefront uh, of, uh, of environmental uh, regulation as in the last uh, 10 or 15 years. And the final remark I would like to make as far as international law is concerned, we do have some examples of good international environmental regulations that have actually led to some progress. If you look, for example, at the Montreal Protocol on ozone-depleting substances, there are now new reports saying that the, the, the hole in the ozone layer is actually closing again because of the CFC restrictions. So an effective international treaty, at least when it's a restricted treaty, maybe restricted to specific substances, I think can have quite some impact. This has been the LexisNexis Environmental Law and Climate Change Center podcast. Highlights from the symposium Law and the Environment, Designing a Transatlantic Agenda. Visit the Environmental Law and Climate Change Center and all the communities at www.lexisnexis.com 
slash communities. The LexisNexis Environmental Law and Climate Change Center podcast. Copyright 2009 by LexisNexis. A division of Reed Elsevier Incorporated. LexisNexis. Total Practice Solutions.